If you will, tonight to the book of Hebrews. We're going to see if we can work through the sixth chapter of, uh, of Hebrews this evening. Um, if you were with us last time, which was uh, two weeks ago, we took a break last week for the Thanksgiving holiday. But two weeks ago, we talked about some of the most controversial scriptures that, uh, that are in the New Testament. And we covered, uh, covered them in, in some detail. Uh, certainly, we didn't do everything we could have done with it. And uh, if, if that were the case, if we did, then we'd be here forever. But um, uh, we want to um, see if we can tidy up some things, wrap up some things that we left hanging from the last time we were together. And then also I want to show you a different angle that, um, that I believe the Holy Ghost is, uh, was inspiring Paul, who uh, again I believe was the writer of the book of Hebrews to, uh, to cover in some of these things. Now in order to, um, well what's the best way to say this? In my opinion, chapter 6 should have started in chapter 5 and verse 10. Because Paul is introducing in uh, the fifth chapter the, uh, what becomes the majority theme of the book, and that is Jesus is our high priest. And so he begins to say that he wants to share things about Jesus in relation to Melchizedek. So in chapter 5 and verse 10, it says, called of God, speaking of Jesus, called of God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then Paul says, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing that you are dull of hearing. And then he changes tracks. He, he expresses that he wants to tell us about Jesus. He wants to tell us about Melchizedek. But, um, well, I can relate to this. Because there are a lot of times that I'm teaching and I'll start to say something and I'm, I'm on a certain track and I'm sharing something that uh, uh, maybe a story or something that I remember the Brother Hagin taught me or something else that I learned or, or something like that. And I realize, wait a minute, that doesn't have any business being said in this location, in this situation, because they don't know what went behind that and so forth. And so if you go into it, you open a can of worms and, and, and it becomes a problem. That's kind of what Paul does here. Because he says, I've got a lot of things to say to you about Jesus in relation to Melchizedek, specifically about being our high priest, but you can't handle it. So what's he going to do? So he's going to say, and never mind. There's something he's trying to get across, but he has to bring them up to speed. He has to get them to a place where he feels like he can share some things with them and tell them why he doesn't feel like he can under the present circumstances. The present circumstances being verse chapter 5, verse 11. Then he tells them why. Here's why he says, here's why I'm having trouble telling you these things. Verse 12, for when, for when for the time, literally in the Greek it's because of the time, you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. So verse 12, he tells what this problem is with, with telling them the things that he wants to share. He says, you're not mature enough for it. Now, notice the way he says it. He does not just say, you're spiritually immature. He says, you've become spiritually immature. Now, we talked a little bit about this. Uh, i tell you what, maybe, uh, let me read down through verse 14, and then we'll back up and make some comments. Verse 13, for everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe or a baby Christian. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age or maturity. Even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. In other words, he's saying you can't be spiritually mature unless you're living the word. It's not a matter of what you've heard. And folks, Brother Hagin used to say something that, that always stuck with me. When I first heard it, it was condemnation because I wasn't measuring up to it. 
but it's something that, uh, that stuck with me over the years, and that is, he said this. He said, you don't know the word that you're confessing. You know the word that you're living. In other words, there's a big difference between confessing the word, which we all start off doing. We all start off confessing the word, expecting it to become a reality in our lives. But then there comes a point where we've experienced. Paul talked about it in this context. He said, add experience to your faith. In other words, don't make it just a confession, just something that you say you believe. Make it something you live. That's why the Bible says the just shall live by faith, not just the just shall make faith confessions. There's a big difference in those two. Now, we all make faith confessions and should, but it should be a lifestyle for us. It shouldn't just be used like one, one person said, I think it's Fred Price that said, don't just use faith like a spare tire when you need help. It should be a lifestyle. It should be the way that we operate. Well, that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying maturity, spiritual maturity comes to by living the word, not just hearing the word, not just confessing the word, but by living the word of God. That's where spiritual maturity comes. And you're not there. But the way that he says it shows us that they once were there, or at least on the road to being there, and they've digressed. Now, we've compared this, and we talked about this uh, limitedly last time. We compared this to what he said to the the Corinthians. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, compare something that Paul said to the Hebrews as uh, as opposed to what he said to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said, beginning in verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Anytime you see the word carnal used in the New Testament, it always means the same thing. It means body ruled. So he says, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual people. But as body-ruled people, well, what does that tell us about spiritual people? They're not ruled by their bodies. They're not ruled by their circumstances. They're not ruled by their emotions. They're not ruled by their feelings. They're not ruled by the things that they can see and feel and touch. I guess feel and touch are the same thing, huh? Anyway, they're not ruled by their five physical senses. They're ruled by something else. Well, what is that something else? Spiritual men and women are ruled by what the Word says and not by their five physical senses. And that's the point that Paul is trying to make to the Hebrews. He says, meat belongs, strong meat belongs to those that have, by reason of use, have exercised their senses to discern what is valuable and what is worthless. Well, what's worthless? The things your five physical senses tell you in comparison to the Word of God. Because your five physical senses will tell you a lot of times that the Word of God is not true. Well, which is right. The Word's always true. The Word's eternal. Heaven and earth will pass away, but the Word will never fail. Spiritual people figure that out. Spiritual people learn that, not just because the Bible says that it's true, but because they live it in their lives. And folks, that's the reason that this, these scriptures show you right up front why so much of the church is in a babyhood stage of Christianity. They're ruled by their five physical senses. Yeah, well, the Bible says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with the stripes we were healed, but I just don't feel healed. Which is true, what you feel or what the Bible says. Well, it is true. I don't feel healed, Pastor Mike. How can you say it's not true? Because I just don't feel healed. Okay. I accept that your feelings are fact, but the Word of God is truth. And truth will always trump facts. We're not talking about things that are not factual. We're talking about things that are not truthful or eternal. Truthful in the sense of eternity. That's what Paul's trying to say. Now, let's keep reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He said, I couldn't speak to you as spiritual because you're carnal. You're body ruled. You're like babies, spiritual babies. I fed you with milk and not with meat. So milk must make you grow. 
Peter said, desire the sincere milk of the word where you may grow thereby. He said, I fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto were you not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. For you are yet carnal, whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions. Are you not carnal and walk as mere men? So what does it tell you that your feelings are going to lead you to? It's going to lead you to divisions. It's going to lead you to envying. It's going to lead you to strife. Now, nobody would even dare to suggest that that's happening in the church world today, would we? You get people beginning to mature and they don't have fights with each other anymore. They get along. They may disagree, but they find a way to work it out. Now, what did Paul say to the Corinthians? He said, you need to feed on the milk of the word so you can grow up. What did he say to the, Corinth, uh, to the Hebrews? He said, you were on track, but now you've become spiritual babies. There's a huge difference in those two. There is not one, uh, you know as well as I do that Hebrews chapter 6 contains scriptures that everybody gets in uproars about and all kinds of controversy about, well, can somebody lose their salvation and what does it mean and, and what are the steps to losing your salvation and all this kind of stuff. Do you see anything that Paul said to the Corinthians about losing salvation? Why? Because they're spiritual babies. They haven't grown up. They still have the opportunity to grow up. Why did he say anything like that to the Hebrews? Because they're going backwards. Go back with me to Hebrews chapter 6. So what's Paul's context for Hebrews chapter 6? It's time to grow back up. You're going backwards. You're going in the wrong direction. You were on the track to spiritual maturity. Now you have become like spiritual babies. We know that's true from what he talked about, uh, from what the Bible tells us uh, about what happened with the Galatians, the letter written to the Galatians. We know what the, ch- the church of Jerusalem is doing. We know what the Jews are doing in sending Peter and sending out other people. Uh, they sent Peter to Antioch in Acts chapter 15 or 14, I guess it was. They sent um, other representatives out to Galatia to try to get people back to circumcision and keeping the law of Moses and stuff like that. Why are they going backwards? They didn't start with circumcision and the law of Moses. Once Jesus was raised from the dead, they saw signs and wonders and miracles and people flocked in. They got 3,000 people saved on the day of Pentecost. They got 5,000 saved in Acts chapter 3 because the man at the beautiful gate of the temple was healed. They didn't get saved on circumcision. They didn't get saved on the law of Moses. They got saved on the reality of Jesus being the risen Lord and Savior who shed his blood for our sins. Why are they back on circumcision and, and law of Moses for them? That's what Paul's talking about to the Hebrews. He says, you folks are going backwards. Therefore, verse six, or chapter 6, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Now, what's the therefore, therefore? He's saying in order to grow back up. In order to gain back the things that you've lost and, get, and, and, and overtake or retake spiritual maturity. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of a resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God permits. Well, we know God does permit because in chapter 7 he gets back over talking about Jesus and Melchizedek. So what he's saying is this is what we'll do. Here's what I plan to do with you if God will let me go there. His point is in chapter 5 and verse 10, I can't go there yet. In chapter 7, okay, it's all right for me to go now. So the things he's going to tell them in chapter 6 are really, really important for them to get back on track. Really important to get back on track. Now we get in 
to the tough scriptures. Verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they fall away. Now notice that phrase, fall away. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now last time we were together, we talked about the concept of someone losing their salvation. We know that must be the case. We know that it's possible for somebody to lose their salvation. Paul speaks again in chapter 10 about uh, someone uh, who was once sanctified by the covenant and then uh, treading under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, what a terrible thing that is. Peter talks about those who were sanctified and then come to the place where they lose their position uh, with God and, and face judgment. Jude talks about those who were twice dead that were in the church. Those that come together in the, in the feasting at the church and, and things like that. He talks about people that are twice dead. Well, you can't be twice dead unless you were once alive. Now, twice dead can't be physical death. Because why would there be people eating among them that are physically dead? That doesn't make sense. So the death he's talking about has to be spiritual death. So what is he saying? He's saying they were once dead... And then became alive through Jesus Christ, through salvation. And then they died again spiritually. That has to mean they lost their salvation then. Whatever whatever terminology you want to put on it, it has to mean the loss of salvation. So we know that the Bible speaks in four different places about someone who loses their place with God. It has to be possible. Certainly it has to be possible. But it's interesting how that Paul spoke about these things. Because he used a phrase that can mean two different things. Where he talks about falling away, he could be talking about somebody losing their salvation, but he could also just be talking about somebody that backslides. And there are different words that he could have used to specify either of the two. But he didn't. He used one thing. And that's not really uncommon at all for the Holy Ghost. There are a lot of things the Holy Ghost will speak to us that have double meanings. For example, the Bible talks about the rapture. But the word rapture is not in the scripture. It talks about a departure. It talks about a catching away. The King James says catching away. Well, what does that mean? It could mean one of two things. Literally, it means departure. It could mean one of two things. You've got one school of thought in the body of Christ that says there's going to be a great apostasy, a turning away from the faith in the last days. And you've got another group in the church that says there's going to be a great catching away or a great rapture in the last days. Which one is right? I believe both of them are. And I believe that's the very reason that the Holy Ghost said it in the way that he did, because there is a double meaning. The Bible talks about people giving up on the things of God. The Bible talks about people gathering to themselves teachers because they want to hear certain things and only those certain things. But turning away from the power of the gospel. The Bible talks about all of those things in different places. Well, is that possible? Is it possible that that's what it means there? Yeah, sure it is. But there's no question that Jesus is coming back for the church and will be caught away and and changed in the twinkling of an eye. So is it possible that it means that too? Yeah, it means them both. The same thing's true here. There's a double meaning. And everybody focuses on the one. Everybody focuses on the spectacular one. Well, what about the loss of salvation? Folks, please keep this in context. Now, whether Paul intends by the Holy Ghost to be talking about two things or not, I don't know. 
I know there have been times where I've said certain things in a service that I meant to apply to one thing, but people have come up to me afterwards, you know, maybe weeks later or something like that, and they'll say, oh, Pastor Mike, when you said this in the service, the Holy Ghost spoke to me and said it meant this in my life and so on and so forth. And I thought, I wasn't even talking about that. Yet it was something that God used to them and witnessed to their heart and brought them some measure of victory in their lives. I'm glad God's not limited just by the words that I say or the way that I say them. If that's the case, folks, we're in a big trouble here. Because I'm pretty limited in my knowledge. I don't know what's going on with you. But we've all had experiences like that. We've all had things that something was said, but the Holy Ghost used it in a little different way. That's what's happening here. Now, let me recap just a little bit of what we said before. There's the spectacular side. The spectacular side is somebody losing their salvation if they fall away, meaning if they uh, depart from Christ. It's impossible to renew them again to repentance. You need to understand something, folks. There is only one... Well, let me back up even further. Before you're saved, sins are not the problem. For the unsaved, sins are never the problem. The problem is sin, singular. One sin is the problem, and that is the decision about Jesus. There is only one unpardonable sin. There is only one sin that somebody goes to hell for, and that's the sin of rejecting Jesus. Period. The sin of rejecting Jesus. However, the Bible talks about sins unto death. What does that mean? John talked about that. John said, if you see your brother sin, a sin that's not unto death, you can ask God for forgiveness for him. But I don't say that about the sin unto death. In other words, the sin unto death, you can't change that. No matter how much you pray, if somebody prays a sin unto death, that's going to be the way it is. Well, do we have any examples of the sin unto death? Yeah, we've got several. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about a guy that took his father's wife and is living with her openly in sin. What did Paul do? Turn, hold your finger here. We're going to come back to Hebrews. But turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians chapter 5 speaks of discipline in the church. We'll start in verse 1. Paul said, It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. In other words, he's saying, even the unsaved people aren't doing this kind of stuff. Maybe the unsaved people have changed a little bit in our day, but nevertheless. Verse 2, And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned. In other words, you're proud about this. Now, folks, there's only one reason that I can think of that people would be proud, take a position of being proud of this, and that is if the two people were, were close in age. If the father's wife seemed to be, a, and he doesn't say mother, so it must be a second wife or something like that. If she's closer to the son's age and they seem to be such a cute couple and a better fit than the younger girl was with the father, which was a very common thing in marriage in those days. I mean, old guys would take 13, 14, 15-year-old girls for wives. Sounds kind of gross. But here you may have the son who's the same age or maybe even a little bit older than this second wife. And he likes her and he says, man, she's cute. And I mean, after all, they're saved. They love Jesus. And so they get together and the people in the church say, oh, isn't that cute? 
Folks, God doesn't seem to think too much of our winking at sin. Now, you can really meddle here because that's a lot of what Christians are doing where the the issue of homosexuality and gay marriage is concerned. But, Pastor Mike, it's just two people that love each other. Okay. Let's see how God deals with Paul to deal with this. He said, and you're puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that has done this deed might be taken away from among you. And in other words, he's saying, you in the church should say, hey, you can't be a part of this church if you're going to do that. Now, folks, the letter is not written to a pastor. It's written to the people. So the people have a responsibility here. You've got a responsibility to keep the church pure. That seems to imply a level of accountability that we have to one another, doesn't it? Don't hear much about that in the New Testament church today, do you? Verse 3, for I verily as absent in body but present in spirit have judged already. Now, folks, I've really got to try to stay on track here, but there's a lot of things that I want to say. And a lot of things I think need to be said. Here's something for you to chew on. Paul didn't seem to understand the modern day teaching of the grace message. Paul said he judged it. You won't hear any of the famous grace teachers nowadays that ever talk a word about judging anything. Because there's no judgment. As as a matter of fact, some of the most well-known preachers say that Jesus paid for all of your sins, past, present, and future. If that's the case, why didn't Paul say, oh, I heard about that cute couple. It's not right, but you know Jesus paid the price for that too. He didn't though, did he? He said, if you're not going to deal with it, I'll deal with it. I started the church. The church is my responsibility. I'll deal with it. I've judged already. Folks, behavior is really important to God. Purity is really important to God. So he said, I verily, as absent in body but present in spirit, have judged already as though I were present concerning him that has so done this deed. If you're not going to do it, I'll do it, even if I have to do it from long distance. Well, what'd you do, uh, Paul? What'd you judge? In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, and my spirit is there too, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, here's my judgment, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Please notice God doesn't destroy people's flesh. The judgment of God is never to destroy somebody's flesh. But apparently the judgment of God can be to to deliver somebody to Satan so that their flesh is destroyed. I I don't really expect this to be a hoop and holler service, folks, but I want to look at you long enough to see that you're getting this. Do you understand what it's saying? Paul is saying, I want you to have a church service and put this guy in the middle of it. And during this church service, the power of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and my spirit are there to gather together with you. For the purpose of delivering this guy over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But notice that's not the end of the verse. That his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So we're not talking about the sin unto death being spiritual death then are we? He's done something that if he doesn't change is going to cost him his physical life. And Paul is inspired by the Holy Ghost to be a part of it. In turning him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. But it's not spiritual death. Just physical death. For the purpose of his spirit being saved. 
the implication. Now, it doesn't say so, but the implication is if we don't do something about this, and if the guy stays on the wrong track without his life being cut short, he could lose his salvation. It's there, isn't it? And what is the purpose? The purpose is for the mercy of God to be shown unto this guy so that he doesn't spend eternity in hell. Seems like harsh judgment, but when you compare it to hell, it's pretty, pretty, pretty much the mercy of God in operation here, folks. So many times the things in the Bible that look so hard to us, oh, I don't want to follow those rules. I don't want to do what it says. It's the mercy of God trying to keep you out of trouble. Now, let me show you another example. We're right here in 1 Corinthians. Turn with me over to chapter 11. Here's another sin unto death. Paul's talking about the communion. And he says, uh, verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. Unworthily means in an unworthy manner. The blood of Jesus is the only thing that can make you worthy. So he's not talking about the condition of the people as far as their spiritual condition is concerned because he's talking about people that are saved. If they're saved, they're made worthy by the blood of Jesus. But he says if there's an unworthy manner in which they're partaking of the Lord's Supper, that's a different thing. And he's going to describe what those things are. He says, whosoever, um, where am I? Whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Pretty serious, huh? But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Again, Paul doesn't seem to understand the grace message. He's going to talk about examining yourself so that you don't get judged. 4, verse 29, For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily in an unworthy manner, eateth and drinketh damnation, Literally, the word is condemnation, not damnation as, as in being sent to hell, but condemnation because of his attitude and his actions. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh condemnation to himself. What is the unworthy manner that he's talking about? He's talking about the attitude of not discerning the Lord's body. In other words, not recognizing that the bread and the wine represents the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for your sins and for your physical well-being. For, verse 31, if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. Paul, what about grace? Come on. Folks, please understand, Paul said the world would be judged by his gospel. This is the gospel of grace. It's not this sloppy, do anything you want to, we're all just free in Christ stuff. Yeah, but, but Pastor Mike, Paul talks so much about who we are in Christ. Yeah, he did. First, second, third chapters of Ephesians are wonderful to show you who you are in Christ. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are straighten up and quit sinning. You won't hear any of the grace teachers teaching on chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians. Why? Because it talks about lifestyle. That's kind of hard to reconcile with the modern day grace message. Which is do whatever you want to do. And the attitude is, if we just keep teaching people who they are in Christ, they won't sin. The Ephesians did. Paul taught them. He stayed with them there for three and a half years. You're going to tell me that modern day grace teachers are going to do better than Paul did with the revelation of Jesus himself? Seriously?
For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord. That doesn't mean punished. It means instructed. We are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Now, this word condemned means being sent to hell. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that sometimes, if nothing else works, having difficulties come against our flesh are the things that turn us around. Now, what did Paul say about those that are doing this very thing? Not discerning the Lord's body and eating in an unworthy manner. Um, I skip verse 30. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. Why? Because of the unworthy manner that they were operating in. Because they didn't discern the Lord's body. It says many of them are sick, many of them are weak, and many of them die prematurely. What is that? It's a sin unto death. Not discerning the Lord's body is a sin unto death. Does it cost you your salvation? Nope. Can it cost you your physical life? Yep. So, folks, please understand there's a difference between the unpardonable sin, which is the only thing anybody is ever sent to hell for, and that's rejecting Jesus, and the sin unto death. There's a lot of different sins unto death. And that's why the Bible is so instructive and important to us to instruct us in how to live the Christian life. That's what Paul's talking to the Hebrews about. He says, get back on track. Why? Because you might be setting yourselves up for the sin unto death, and in an extreme case, some of you could even lose your salvation. Back to Hebrews 6. So that's the extreme side. That's the, uh, that's the juicy side. That's the juicy meaning that everybody wants to talk about. What, how do you lose your salvation and so forth? Now let's go back to the other side. Let's go back to the second meaning of this. And, and honestly, I believe the second meaning has more application to the book of Hebrews than the, than the first does. Don't get me wrong. The steps are there. The information is there. Certainly, the Bible tells us about that. But what do you know, as well as I do, is the number one thing people do with Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. They start trying to figure out who's lost it. And I don't believe for a minute that that was Paul's intent. Because quite frankly, it's none of anybody else's business if you or me or somebody else has lost it. It's between them and the Lord. Now, we want to help people, certainly. But your, spiritual, your salvation is between you and God. So what does Paul say? Let's go back to verse 4. Paul says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come if they shall fall away to renew them again to repentance. Seeing they crucified themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, folks, the reason I covered the first part of it is I want you to understand here's one school of thought. Here's one possible, well, one meaning, not possible meaning. Here's one meaning of what Paul's talking about. Now erase that and start fresh. What's the context that Paul is speaking? Grow up and get back on track. That's the context. If somebody's already lost their salvation, there is no growing up because they can't be renewed to repentance. Okay? So let's forget that part for the time being. I'm sure that the people that are hearing this read in the church uh, where it was taken back to Jerusalem, I'm sure they're hearing this and they're saying, Oh my gosh, could this be me? Well, now, wait a minute. The word Paul uses for fall away can mean an extreme loss of salvation term, or it could mean something as simple as stumbling and falling. It can mean something as simple as deviating from the path, which is literally what the word means if you deviate from the path. Well, what does that mean? 
Well, let's say you're walking down a path in the middle of the woods and you get to looking at something and step off the path. Are you doomed forever? No, you get back on the path. That's all you do. You get back on the path. That's the point that Paul's trying to make. He's saying, now, folks, you should be mature. You should be teaching other people and ministering to others. But you're not. You've become like babies. What tells us that they've become like babies? Verses 1 and 2 tell us what they're doing. He says again, therefore, leaving, uh, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection. Here's how you go back to maturity. Not laying again. Now, why is he going to tell them not to lay things again if that's not what they're doing? He's addressing exactly what they're doing. He's saying, here's what you folks are doing. And here's what you've got to quit doing if you're going to grow back up. Get back on track and grow up in God. You've got to quit laying the, the foundation of repentance from dead works. What does he mean? He means the stuff you did before you got saved. And a faith toward God. What are they relaying? They're relaying the foundation of getting saved again. You know what these people are doing? They're doing exactly what so many Christians do today. And everybody you know that operates this way is a baby Christian and never has grown a lick. They think, oh my goodness, what if God didn't really forgive me? Maybe I need to get born again. Or I've, I've sinned, I've backslidden, I've, I've committed some, some terrible thing and the Lord has left me. So what do they do? They, they question their salvation. Am I really saved? And so they, then they go back and they say, oh Lord, please save me, please save me, please save me. What are they doing? They're trying to get saved again and again and again and again and again. Why? Because they're not accepting the basic principles of repentance from dead works. Once you turn away from them and accept Jesus as your Lord, that's done. It's over. Forget it. Well, what about if we sin after we get saved? 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess it, ask forgiveness, receive it by faith, and forget it. These people are going around the same circle. They're circling the same bush over and over and over again. They're letting the things of their past hold them back and think that they can't get back to God. And Paul says it's impossible to get saved again. You wasted your time trying to get saved again. You know what the the real context of Hebrews chapter 6 is? You're already in. Quit trying to get back in. That's the context of Hebrews 6. He's going to give you some examples. Notice verse 7. Well, uh, we better back up again. Let's back up to verse 6. It says, if they fall away. Connect verse 4 and verse 6, for it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. That's what he's saying. Everything else is in parenthesis. He's saying it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Renew means to repeat repeat the salvation experience. It's impossible. You can't get saved again. Once you're in the body of Christ, he's talking eternal security here, folks. These are the very scriptures that the church world takes in some spectacular extreme way and tries to prove that we're not eternally secure when the very point that he's trying to make is you're in. And if they're not in, why is he writing them a letter? He's not writing to sinners. Now, certainly there may be people in the, in the, the, the church at Jerusalem, maybe members of the priesthood that have turned away completely and they've lost it. But he's writing to the church. He's not writing to the ones that have done the wrong things. He's telling the church, you need to grow back up. Well, if they were already out, 
how can they grow back up? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying you can't get saved again. You're already in. Quit moaning and groaning about the Lord having left you. You're already in. You can't get saved again. What are you going to get born again again? And every time you try to do this, every time you go back and repent of dead works again and again, every time you go back and question whether or not you're really saved, you're crucifying Jesus openly again. And you're putting him to shame. You're saying what the Bible tells you, or what Paul's preaching to them by the Holy Ghost is already declared is not true. And that puts puts Jesus to an open shame. That's what he's talking about. Verse 7. Now here's the examples he's going to give. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them, by whom it is dressed, receives blessing from God. But he that bears thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Now what is he saying? He's saying the earth is a good example of this. Now remember what what the context of this was in chapter 5. He's saying you ought to be teachers. You ought to be mature. But you've gotten off the track of spiritual maturity and you've digressed to spiritual babyhood. So you need to get back on track. You need to get back where you can live the word of God and begin to grow and begin to mature. And he's saying the earth's a good example. What's the purpose of the rain coming down to the earth? It causes stuff, it waters the earth and causes stuff to grow fruit. Right? Causes crops and fruits and stuff like that to grow. Is the fruit for the ground or fruit for other people? I've never yet seen the, seen the ground take advantage of the crops it grows. What is it saying? It's saying here's the way that it should work in the Christian life. The, the rain, which is a type of the word of God. We've seen other scriptures that, that clearly show that. The rain, which is a type of the word of God, comes down and waters the earth. The water is the benefit for the earth, but the fruit that grows is for the benefit of other people. That's what he's saying about them as Christians. You need to accept what God has done through Jesus for you so that you can grow and mature and produce fruit for other people to be benefited by. That's what he means about you ought to be teachers and able to help other people. But if the earth, after having been watered, doesn't grow fruit and only grows thorns and briars and thistles and stuff like that, which are, which are types of the works of the flesh, a type of carnality, carnal works, he says, sooner or later, even that's burned. What is he talking about? Well, for the Christians, we stand before the Lord when we get to heaven, and he judges our works. Now, that, I don't really like the way that that, 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 that uh, terminology is used in church circles, Because what it is is an award ceremony. What it's intended to be is an award ceremony. Because we're supposed to be living for eternity. So that's where you get your rewards. For many people it's going to be a bonfire. Because the Bible says that the things that we do that don't count for eternity, the things that we do that just apply to the flesh, will burn up like wood, hay, and stubble. I have no doubt that if we could pull back and get a wide shot of the church standing before the Lord at the award ceremony... God's intent might be for every now and then to be a little flash of fire. Earthly works burning up. I'm convinced that for a lot of people, it's going to be a huge bonfire. But again, the intent is for us to receive our heavenly rewards. And again, Paul and John, who both tell us about this, must not have understood the grace message. Because they said there would come a time where what we do is judge. 
So that's what he uses. First illustration he uses is the earth. The earth receives that type of the word for its own benefit, but then the fruit that it grows is for the benefit of others. That's the sign of maturity, where we grow up so we can help other people with our lives. Now, folks, let me tell you something. Your healing is not for for other people. Your healing is for you. Your prosperity is not for other people. It's to meet your needs. However, the other side of prosperity is you can have seed to the sower where you can be a blessing to other people. The other side of healing is that you can minister healing to others. So there's a dual benefit. There's something that benefits us, that waters us, but then that's supposed to grow out into fruit so we can help other people. And that's what Paul says the church at at Jerusalem, the Hebrews, have failed to do. They were doing it one time. Man, the church at Jerusalem in the beginning of the book of Acts, it was blowing and going. They were getting people saved. They were sending missionaries out. And then all of a sudden they got talking about themselves. They got concerned about themselves and everything died. They They became the most impoverished church physically, spiritually, and financially of any other place in the Roman Empire. I wonder if their spiritual decline had anything to do with that. Now let me prove that this is the context that Paul is talking to him about. Verse 9, he said, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and the things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. In other words, he's saying, even though I'm saying some hard things to you and even I've, I've jumped on your toes trying to scare you into getting back on track, I get that. We're persuaded that there's better things of you than just the things that will be gathered and burned. But then they've got to still be saved. They have to still be in the kingdom of God. They, st- they have to still be in the place that they are relaying the foundation to get back into. Verse 10. For God is un- not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Now, what's he talking about? He's saying, remember all the good stuff you did? You know what's interesting? is so many times when we mess up, the devil is right there to show us every little thing that we've done wrong, every little thing we thought wrong, every little wrong thing we ever said, everything that's wrong about us. But God remembers the good stuff you did too. God remembers the good stuff that they did, and it still counts to their credit. Now, here's the thing about getting back. And, and uh, well, let me see. Do I want to stop? And... Yeah, let me go a little bit further. Verse 12. Well, verse 11 again in 12. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Folks, The two key elements of growing up spiritually are faith and patience. It would be nice if it was just faith. Because you've got a lot of people that are strong in faith. They know what the Word says. They're willing to say what the Word says. But there's no patience to them. And fruit does not grow overnight. It just doesn't. It takes time. And sometimes it takes a long time. And so he's saying, don't give up just because you don't see instant results. Now, the thing about uh, people that, uh, that are of faith, it's interesting. You can find gripers and complainers in any group. And, and some people, bless their hearts, they think it's a spiritual gift to be able to see what's wrong. It's not. All of us can see what's wrong with, this, with uh, any situation. 
But you've got other people on the other side, people that have developed faith and patience, where the gripers will say, oh, we've got so far to go. Oh, my goodness, we'll never get back. We've got so far to go. The people that have developed faith and patience will say, yeah, but look how far you've come. Remember what it was like. Okay, I've got about three more minutes here. Thank you very much for the lights. Um, I was going to say something. What was I going to say? I know where I am. I was just teasing. Here's something I found out, and, and, and we feel this way spiritually so often. We feel like, oh, my goodness, we've got so far to go. We'll see somewhere we've messed up, and we think, oh, I should be past that. I should be more developed and more mature than that. I can't believe I keep tripping over this over and over again. And, and you know as well as I do, you see people that leave church. You see people that get out of the Word, and, and they begin to change. Faith comes by hearing, but faith goes by not hearing, folks. And you see people that begin to digress spiritually. And, and you talk to them, and, and they may even remember back to the days where the, the blessings of God were working in their life, and the Word of God, whenever pressure was applied to them from any direction, the, the words, what came out of their heart. And, and, and sometimes people get discouraged, and they give up. They say, well, I... I it's just, it'll take too long. It's just too hard to get back to where I was. And so they give up. But, you know, there's something I learned. And this is true even physically. I know that if I, uh, if I stay out of the gym for, I don't know, a month or so, sometimes I'll take a break. Uh, sometimes an injury or something like that, you, you stop going to the gym for a while. It takes you half as long to get back as you left. If you're out for, if you're out for four weeks, in two weeks you can get back. How much more true is that spiritually with the Holy Ghost helping you? I mean, that's just the way it works naturally. Whatever progress you lose in the gym physically, naturally you can gain it quicker than you lost it. Gain it back quicker than you lost it. But look how much more true that would be of spiritual things with the Holy Ghost helping you. All he needs them to do is make the commitment and get back on track and get in the Word. That's all he needs them to do. And so he tells them to be followers of those who faith and patience inherit the promise. And now he's going to give them the number one example that they could possibly have, and that's Abraham. Notice what he says about Abraham. For when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Folks, if there's anybody that ever missed it and ever messed up, it's Abraham. Try to give his wife away twice. Now, we can... Argue about why that would be all we want to, but he messed up over and over and over again. Have you ever heard of Ishmael? He messed up time after time after time after time, but every time he saw where he messed it, messed up, he got back on track. That's why he's telling them to be followers of them who faith and patience, through faith and patience inherit the promise. He's saying, remember Abraham. Abraham messed up just like you did. Abraham turned his back on some things just like you did, but look at where he came to. He came to the place where after years and years and years of following God, messing up, turning back around, messing up, turning back around, finally when the Lord gave him the son of promise and said, now I want you to offer him on the altar as a sacrifice, Abraham said, sure, no problem, I can do that. He had developed such confidence in God that if it was necessary for God to raise the boy back from the dead, he knew that he would because the boy can't die. There's too much promise attached to him. He can't die. How did he get there? He got there by making mistakes and turning around. Same way Paul is telling them to do. So he said, 
When God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath is confirmation to them, an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. In other words, he's saying, when it comes to natural relationships, business relationships, stuff that's going on between human beings, he said, when a contract is signed, that's the end of the argument. The contract settles all the disagreements. How much more so is that true when God makes a, a promise? How much more so is that true when it comes to God's covenant and when it comes to the Word of God? Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it with an oath. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. That's fancy King James language for saying this. Remember, and remember this was attached to the letter that he wrote to the Galatians. Paul says in Galatians 3 that it was Christ who God made the covenant with. We call it Abraham's covenant. It's not. It's Abraham's blessing. But it's not Abraham's covenant. The covenant was between two unchanging partners, God and Jesus. You remember, uh, what's his name? Abraham was not the one that walked through the, the two pieces, the divided animals. He was not the one that walked through the blood. That was the terms of the covenant. You had to have two, partners, two parties that did that. Abraham wasn't the one that did it. He fell asleep. God put him in this, this deep sleep. When all this was taking place. Then who is God making the covenant with? It wasn't Abraham. Abraham's asleep. Who did he make the covenant with? God made the covenant with his son Jesus. And here's Paul's point. If a man's contract or oath. Settles the strife and the disagreement between two parties. How much more is that true. When you've got two parties that cannot change. Two immutable parties immutable means unchanging you got two immutable partners making this covenant together god who can't change jesus who can't change how much more sure is the word a security for us or a surety for us folks you need to realize something the bible is not just the word of god meaning god talking to us the bible tells us what god has declared that cannot change that's the oath that he's talking about. He's talking about God making a covenant with his son Jesus in Abraham's stead. That's why Abraham was put to sleep in Genesis chapter 15. So that Jesus could be the covenant partner. Remember Galatians 3 says, The promise was not made to Abraham and his seeds, meaning plural, children, but to his seed, singular, meaning Christ. What does it mean? It means the promise or the covenant was made between God and Jesus on Abraham's behalf. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the unchanging of his counsel, the unchanging nature of his counsel, confirmed it with an oath. Here's the covenant. The covenant was the oath. That by two unchanging things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. In other words, you want a reason for staying on track? 
It's that the word cannot fail. Jesus really meant what he said when he said heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never fail. He ought to know he was the one that was there making the covenant with God on Abraham's behalf. He says it can't fail. And folks, that's where the devil always tries to trip you up. Yeah, but what if it doesn't work? How can it not work? You got two unchanging partners, two unchanging parties, God and Jesus, who declared this is the way it is. How can it not work? And, and, and folks, I'm, what I'm talking to you about is everything concerning attitude and will. I remember, uh, uh, can I take a few more minutes and finish this? Okay. I remember Brother Hagin talking about a, a vision that he had where, um, um, well, the, the, Jesus was talking to him in this vision and all of a sudden a little devil-looking thing came and, and, and started stirring up smoke screen between, between Jesus and Brother Hagin. And, and he could hear the sound of, of uh, as it got thicker and thicker, he could hear the sound of Jesus' voice, but he couldn't make out the words that he was saying. And finally... He did something about it in this vision. He commanded it to, to leave. He kept wondering, why didn't Jesus do something about this? Doesn't he know I can't hear him? Couldn't see him any longer. Everything was, got cloudy and so forth. And so finally, Brother Hagin just told him in the name of Jesus, get out of there. And so the thing did and dissipated and so forth. And, and the Lord told Brother Hagin, he said, if you hadn't done something about that, I couldn't have. Because see, that's what Brother Hagin was wondering. Why, wouldn't, why didn't Jesus do something about it? And that's when the Lord showed him, showed him, uh, took him through the scriptures, four different scriptures in the New Testament that showed him where we've been given authority over the devil instead of God having authority over the devil. And up, to that, up until that point in time, Brother Hagin didn't know that. He had read the scriptures over and over and over again, but he had read over these things but never had seen the truth of it. Well, um, in the process of time, Brother Hagin had, um, uh, had given or had been given an anointing to lay hands on the sick. But it worked different ways at different periods of time in his ministry. Initially, it was an anointing that if Brother Hagin uh, was told by the Lord that if there's an evil spirit present, you'll feel the anointing jump from hand to hand. You lay your hands on one side of their head or on, uh, on either side of their head. If she, he said, if you feel that burning, that anointing jump from hand to hand, you'll know that it's the presence of an evil spirit. Well, later on, that wasn't necessary because of something else the Lord had given him as far as discerning of spirits was concerned. And so Brother Hagin said that there was, uh, told a story about this one, uh, one guy that he, he laid hands on and he felt that thing jump from hand to hand. And so he, he rebuked that evil spirit and, and whatever it was, this thing was causing this guy to not be able to move. I think it was uh, stiffness in his body. He couldn't bend over or something like that, I, I, something along those lines. Anyway, it was something that you could test out. And so he, uh, he, he commanded this thing to turn loose of him and step back and he said, now see if you can bend over. And the guy tried and couldn't do it. Brother Hagin laid hands on him again, felt that thing jump back and forth hand to hand. He says, all right, I rebuke this spirit, command it to go in the name of Jesus. And, uh, and then he stepped back and he said, now see if you, you can bend over. And, uh, and the guy couldn't do it. This happened like three times. And so the guy went back to his seat and Brother Hagin's standing off to the side and he, he's waiting for other people to, to, you know, come be ministered to or whatever. And he's really troubled by this. And he says, Lord, I, I don't understand what... What's going on here? You said that this thing would work, and I, I, I just don't get it. He said all of a sudden he was caught up into the Spirit, and Jesus standing before him. And Jesus pointed his finger in Brother Hagin's face and said, I told you that when there was a presence, the, an evil spirit present, you'd feel that thing jump from hand to hand. You commanded to go, and it would go. And Brother Hagin said, yeah, but, Lord, I did that, and he didn't leave. 
Now, folks, can anybody not relate to this kind of thing? I mean, whether it comes to casting out devils or not, when it comes to, to, to you trying to act on the Word and, and, and having difficulty or not working the way you think it should or the way the Bible says or whatever, we've all been there in some way or another. Brother Hagin said that the, the, looking at the Lord, he said it was like lightning bolts were flashing out of his eyes. He said it was the most frightening thing he ever saw in his life. He said it was like lightning bolts flashing out of his eyes. And Jesus answered and said, but I said he would. And they disappeared. Brother Hagin's still standing on the platform, twiddling the stones, wondering, what am I going to do now? And then all of a sudden, he saw it. All of a sudden, he saw it. See, before, when he laid hands on this guy, he said, he commanded to go and said, now see if you can bend over. Do you get it? He called that guy back up there. He said, you, hey, you, come back up here. He came up to the front. Brother Hagin laid hands on him, felt the thing jump back and forth, just like he did before. He rebuked this thing. He said, now bend over in the name of Jesus. The guy bent over. Everything's fine. Folks, the attitude that you carry it has everything. Your willingness to, de- to, to determine for yourself that the word is true has everything to do with the word working in your life. You can't try this stuff and see if it works. Because it won't. It doesn't work by trying. It works by believing. And a big part of believing is accepting the word is true no matter what I see, no matter what I feel, no matter what anybody else says. The word is true because it's the word of God. Do you get what I'm saying? That's the immutable counsel of God. And that's what it says we have as the hope that's set before us. Now, folks, why have they turned away from Jesus? Why have they gone back to circumcision? Why have they gone back to the law of Moses? Because they've lost hope in Jesus. If they believe that Jesus was the answer in the eternal sacrifice, what do you need anything else for? What good circumcision going to do you? If Jesus is your entrance into heaven, what do you need the law of Moses for? Jesus said he fulfilled that. What do you need anything else for if Jesus really finished the work? You don't. You don't need anything else. So what Paul knows by the Holy Ghost is that they have lost hope. The only reason anybody ever turns away is they lose hope. They may initially just fall into sin or fall into temptation, but if they continue in it, it's because they've lost hope. So what does he say next? Paul uses an example that they understand that you need to to have explained, I'm sure, because it's, it's not common to our culture. He said, which hope, verse 19, which hope, the word hope is added by the translators, but it refers back to the hope of chapter, or verse 18, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Now, when he says the anchor of the soul, he's making a, giving them a word picture. He's showing them how it works where sailing is concerned. And everybody, it was common practice of the day. The anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters into that within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest for us ever after the order of Melchizedek. Here's the point that he makes. In the olden days, or in Paul's day, if a ship was entering into the harbor, especially if it was uh, uh, poor visibility, whether fog or, or you know, nighttime and it, it was poorly lit or something like that, the ship would take the anchor rope. They would untie the anchor. They would take the rope, and the guy, the one guy would jump over the side of the boat and take the rope in between the rocks to show it the way. That guy was called the forerunner. 
Now the forerunner would swim all the way to shore to where the, the boat would dock or anchor or whatever, and they would tie it to the dock. Then other guys would come and help, and they would pull on the rope to get the ship to shore. That's the picture that Paul is using here. And notice what he says. He says the hope that is set before us is the hope that we have as the anchor. In other words, here's what we're tied into. We're tied into something sure and steadfast. And where is it tied? It's tied into that inner part of the temple which was behind the veil. Now, folks, you know as well as I do that there's only one person that could go into that innermost part of the temple, and that was the high priest. And he only under great precaution and only at certain times. What's the point that he's making? What's the picture that he's making? He's saying in order for you to get back on track, you're going to have to confess your sins. You're going to have to apply and exercise the work of the high priest, which is Jesus, to confess your sins before him and come back into the innermost sanctuary. Jesus is the high priest that has entered into heaven Your rope is tied to the throne of God. And Jesus was your forerunner. You don't have to worry about how to get there. How are they trying to get there? Through circumcision and the law of Moses. How are they supposed to get there? Just let him pull the rope. Pull you along with it. That's what the gospel of Jesus is about. Whether the forerunner is for us entered. He's already made the way. In other words, the work is finished. No reason for you to lose hope. No reason for you to go to anything else. He's already done it. Even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Paul has come full circle from chapter 5, verse 11, or verse 10. Full circle. Starts off with Melchizedek and says, I'd like to tell you about that, but I can't because you folks aren't spiritually mature enough for it. Now he spends the rest of the fifth chapter chapter verses 11 through 14 and all of the sixth chapter and comes back to the full circle to Melchizedek in chapter 7 he's going to say now here's Jesus who's like Melchizedek for us and all of chapter 6 that the church gets all hot and bothered about people losing their salvation is in context talking about quit trying to repent from something you've already been forgiven of accept your salvation and get back on track and grow in the word Chapter 6 is not hard to understand when you take it in context. Now, we've got some chapters ahead that are going to be tough. But the church has made chapter 6 tough, and it's not. Chapter 6 answers the eternal security question. He's saying you're already in. You can't get saved again. You're already in. Accept that and keep growing forward. And Jesus is your high priest that shows you the way. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it sets us free. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our high priest, that you have connected us directly to heaven. You have anchored us to the throne room of God. We know that eternity is secure for us because we are in you. We know that the covenant that is yours for our, on our behalf is steadfast and sure. It can never change. The word can never fail. Thank you, Father, for the blessings that bring victory to us in our own lives. But even more so, Father, thank you for the privilege to grow and produce fruit to be a blessing to others. Help us, Father, to be workers of righteousness in our lives. That through our example, others can see your goodness and your mercy. 
In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.